Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider for a very special 400th episode installment of the show. We've reached 400 episodes, which has come along pretty bloody quickly, I'll be honest with you. Like, I was surprised that it was 400, but we've come a long way from our very first episode and we need your help. We'd love everybody to leave a review on whatever app you're listening to this on at this stage, whether it's Spotify or iTunes, or if you're one of those weird people who have Android phones, feel free to do it on that as well. But if you can head over and leave us a review, I personally read each and every one of them. One of the ones that came in that was really sort of stood out for for us was a review by, what is it, FS95, which I'm not sure if it makes some sort of alluding to their age brackets that they were born in 1995. Oh my God. But if you are, it explains why you've only just started listening to the show. So uh, the review goes along this lines. I have been listening to the podcast now for about the last 40 episodes, which is interesting because you've now got 360 other episodes. We have you on lock for the next year, essentially, if yeah. you don't want to take a break. But it only got good at like... I don't know, episode 50 or something. So, uh, like, I'd start from there. Well, I mean, from the first one to 50, me and you were doing the editing, weren't we? So uh, when Michael came in, the quality of the production <laughs> somewhat came uh, became a little bit better. Uh, but the, the, the review goes on to say, absolutely love the level of detail you get into and the content as a whole. Working for a mainstream bank. Oh, we know those. Ooh. They didn't say who. They were still feeling nervous about it. These insights are invaluable in knowing what, others in the industry are doing and how well or not well for that matter i see what now why they didn't say who they were that we are doing and as well as looking into the future i also admire the regularity in which the podcast and the new podcast in comparison with the 11fs in SureTech and blockchain podcast so like pro but they had a little dig that we don't do enough on insurance and blockchain as well which i mean leave people wanting slightly more, which is good. Mm -hmm. I listened to this particular podcast in the car between client journeys and wouldn't listen to anything else. Great job, guys. Keep it coming. We'll keep consuming. So we would love for all of you guys listening on the Apple podcast app or any other podcast app that you have to leave us a review. It would mean the world to us. Thank you very much. Since our 400th episode also falls on Valentine's Day, on the same day of publishing, we thought it would be great to talk about the things that we love most about the industry, and in particular, our favorite industry partnerships for that matter. Whether that's big banks merging, fintechs teaming up and collaborating between all of them, either with big players or small players, we really want to dig into the best relationships in the industry and what is our personal favorites. So on that note, I'm joined by some of my favorite people in the industry who I also happen to get to work with on a daily basis, which is wonderful for me. Yay me. Today, we have Mr. Jason Bates, Deputy CEO of 11FS. How's it going? It's going well, thank you. How's your week been so far? Uh, busy, lots of meetings. I was in Paris two weeks ago. I was in Holland last week, so it's actually good to be back in the office. Yeah, it's February. I've only seen you like three times. It's been kind of weird, hasn't it? You've mm. been jet-setting around the place. Well, I'll hold the fort down. Don't worry. <laughs> fly around. Uh, on my right-hand side, we also have Lida Glyptus, CEO of 11FS Foundry. How's it going, Lida? It's going great. So. I mean, you've been jet-setting around as well, haven't you? Like, um, I'm like back and forth to Oslo. Yeah. Right? <laughs> jet-setting, that is. <laughs> but, uh, um, it's been It's been intense for the last few months. It's been more there than here. But now I've got a, I've got a stretch of not flying at all, which I'm looking forward to. Well, I mean, not quite enough air miles just to get to Oslo, right? So not you quite, need some longer stints. All right, guys. Well, why don't we start with what have been your favorite moments over the last 400 episodes? I mean, can you believe... 
Jason, like when we started this, that we'd get to 400 episodes? Mm. Well, those first ones at level 39 were funny, uh, predominantly because we were doing all of the editing and then choosing the jingle. And then uh, what were you saying earlier? Like some of them were like three hours long at one point, just because we get a few beers, we'd have a chat. No one, we didn't have a production team. So we just stopped when we'd stop when we had, when we'd run out of something to say. <laughs> so there were some really weird early ones where I think we just spoke about everything. We did. I mean, but they were subject matter, like an AI podcast that lasted three hours like if you guys want to go back and listen to i think it's like episode 70 or something um but go back and and check those out but i mean it was pretty like you know an exercise in sort of uh marathon rather than sprints at that point where we we were we could also you could also hear the alcohol consumption as the episodes (laughs) went through so i think at the time we thought they were amazing but the slurring of words and the uh mad laughter by the end of three hours and however much we'd uh, had with our guests i remember the first one i did as a guest having gotten signed off from corporate communications that i could actually be on and turning up in the office the next day with a stinking hangover and people going what did you do after the podcast? And we're like, no, we did the podcast. <laughs> and the, and the, the communications lady looking at me now, you're never going back, <laughs> way. <laughs> well, I mean, we had a laugh, didn't we? We had yes, a laugh. We did. Well, but the fact that, uh, I mean, to be, I guess, more serious, there, there was always something that was really fun about whoever we would get on, uh, sort of authentically just being able to talk about you know, things we found interesting and questions we had and it just being the kind of conversation you would have at the bar of a conference rather than on stage at a conference. And I think that's why, you know, you wanted to start it originally because those person-to-person conversations were much more interesting than let me stand on stage and you give you five slides on digital transformation and why it's important it's yeah. like i mean if you look at uh, yeah exactly why we started it like we we had a couple of drinks with the great guys from solaris bank right mm. and in our worldly wisdom at that point we're like other people should hear this <laughs> <laughs> and here we are 400 episodes later right so uh, but I, I stand by that i mean it, uh, from our perspective as a company like community is such an important thing. So, and we're in such a great position to have really interesting conversations with a, such a wide range of people um, that actually, if we can really bring that to a bunch of other people and that brings value to them, then that's a great thing. But so, that's the uh, amazing thing for someone who's been on both sides of this, right? I've been on the show as a guest a bunch of times and now as a, as a host. It was that community that was so unique at the time. The fact that you had a platform and you shared it. I remember that the first time I had to com- explain the concept to our comms people, they were like, that's not a thing. And so, well, it's a thing now. Welcome to the new world of digital connectivity and different humans. And for me, on the guest side, it was the people I got to meet that as a conventional banker, like our listener there, I just wouldn't get to spend two hours, three hours of just genuine co- conversation with people like, Megan Kayward and Simon Van Scalina, they, we would never cross paths in our old lives. Yeah. And that's how you build community. But what was your, I mean, your, you've been on, like, say, as a, as a guest and a host. So what's been your favorite moment in those uh, those 400, uh, 400 episodes? I mean, can I have two? Can I have one as a guest sure. and one as a host? Um, I think my favorite 
Oh, there's so many. But I must admit that my favorite and the one that makes me chuckle to myself like a crazy person is that one particular, then I'm not going to name the people, but you know who you are. One episode with two people who are very well known in the in the industry and have known each other for a long time. And one kept getting the other one's name wrong. <laughs> you remember the one throughout the episode again and again. And there was no way we would repeat the name, Not nothing. The name was wrong throughout the three hours of recording. It was cringeworthy and hilarious. And I don't think they've learned it. Wait, is that me? <laughs> no, no. It could you, easily have been you and could, every guest we ever had on. It, it could have been, but it wasn't. Um, as a as a as a host, I must admit it was not only meeting Will I Am uh, for a one to one, but actually meeting him twice for a one on one interview and uh, podcast, and getting the Lita, good to see you again hug. Like I don't know what heights of accomplishment I will have in my life. That one's hard to beat. Yeah, I mean, as as moments go, that's a that's a big one. I mean, I I have to say, I still think it's the uh, it's like I mean, a lot of the live events that we've kind of put on, you know, the after dark events that that comes back to me as like the the highlights for me because when we're all sat around like mics like this, it's fun and we have a laugh. But then when you see three hundred people turn out for an event where you're gonna like sit there and they've come because they listen to those things that we'd say. Um, it's suddenly it's humbling, very it? daunting, yeah. I have to say. So, um, if a little bit surreal, I remember, you know, explaining to someone that, yeah, it's like me and my friends, we sit and we have beers, and then two hundred people turn up to listen to the beep stuff that we say <laughs> um, as uh, as the night goes on. You're like, yeah, that doesn't sound like it should be a thing. And then a few my thousand download be a the thing. thing that they weren't there to watch. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I mean, I remember yeah. one moment particularly we were, I think we were about to go on and do an After Dark Halloween special. And I think you were dressed like... Uh, uh, Rick, uh, Rick. Rick out of Rick and Morty. Yeah. And I was, I had like a ghoul mask on yeah. of some description. And then there was like 300 plus people kind of waiting for us to do it. And then this awesome video that Michael had produced like started ticking down. Like I think that was the most nervous moment I've had in like three and a half years or like in 11FS, which is weird. But it's awesome. It says a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, thank you so much, guys, for kind of tuning into this every week. Like the fact that you've done this for 400 episodes now is amazing. Um, We super, super appreciate you. But what we wanted to really talk about was actually the partnerships. You know, what have been the the partnerships that actually really is a, I mean, over the time that we've been recording the show have really, I think, cemented and changed the industry that we all love and work in. So maybe if we start with you, Jason, what's mm-hmm. your favorite fintech partnership and why? So I'm going to go for a, the unsung heroes of fintech partnership. Um, well, I'm going to expand it to, to collaboration. Because I I sat back and I was thinking about this, like what have really been the fundamental partnerships, the fundamental collaboration that's enabled the industry? And actually, I think it's the partnerships between engineers. So I'm going to go for basically like the open source movement. Because when you look at the the stack that now powers uh, almost all of the major fintechs, it's mostly open source software. Mm. So Kubernetes, Docker, Kafka, Cassandra, you know, the list goes on and on. And ultimately, this has been created, sure, within large companies like Facebook and LinkedIn and, and whatever, but ultimately by engineers who have worked with each other to make bigger and bigger building blocks mm. to to build a stack 
that uh, that is fundamentally different from what came before. Yeah. So, you know, you go back, I don't know, 10, 20 years, and everyone was buying Oracle licenses on big hardware. And, you know, the, the licensing costs alone made everything prohibitive in order to do anything. We're not at that stage anymore. You, there are no longer those licensing costs because engineers didn't want that. They wanted the ability to build and then build things that other people could build on. And I think ultimately the the unsung sort of fina- you know fintech partnership has really been between engineer to engineer, mm. uh, enable building these building blocks that have been free for other people to build on. Yeah, I mean, do you think? Uh, do you think in many instances those organizations would do it in the same way? I mean, obviously, there's a great community side there. You know, the opening something up that's been produced uh, in a way that's similar to how, I guess, AWS was in terms of it worked really well for us. Now we're opening it up to other people. Admittedly, they make people pay for it. So it's very <laughs> different to, like, open sourcing things in, in that sense. But do you think that there's a... Uh, many of those organizations would look back on it now and go, uh, containers has really taken off. Like, we should have, like, monetized that in a bigger way. Well, I guess there's two sides to this. It's like, what business are we in? And, you know, so if we take the things... We need tools, and we need engineers that know those tools. Are we in the business of then selling those tools, or... Does the fact that every engineer knows how to use our internal tooling then make it easier for do our, to do our job? Mm. And then there's also the fact that engineers want to work in a place that then uh, develops and releases tools and actually drives that that open source community. So there's one side of like talent acquisition and development and there's another side of actually by making this free, uh, tools that weren't there without licensing costs, which was great as well, you can get an entire community of a th- thousands of people developing the platform that you run your business on. So um, it was a w- very weird economics that absolutely. we just hadn't seen before. I mean, I mean, part of the way you told that story really gave me a warm and fuzzy feeling. And that is the... That might have been engine- <laughs> Yeah. Well, I haven't had enough yet. Bring it, over. Um, it was the engineering partnerships that uh, looking at the, the, the world we live in now, the open source world, but also the... Um, architecture choices that are being driven at the engineering level, the companies that are actually designed to service and promote the needs of engineers so that you can have engineering-first capabilities. That narrative I can get behind, I can get excited about. And I do remember, because I am old enough, sitting in a seven-hour meeting in a bank around the corner from our offices uh, with risk and compliance around the dangers of open-source software. Not just the cost issue on the other side, but like, don't touch that because it must be poisoned if it's free. So the transition of an entire industry from having those meetings to actually being totally comfortable with what it means and how you manage and how you deploy it to actually transitioning to a time when we can let our engineers make those choices. Absolutely transformative. And I would actually wish I had thought of putting down engineer-to-engineer partnerships are the most exciting one. This is why we don't let Jason go first. I know, right? I'm less excited about the thinking about this as AWS and the world as the most exciting partnership because the reality is it's exciting for AWS. But if you think about it from a monopolistic perspective of pure economics, it makes me more uncomfortable than it makes me excited. 
why why does it make you feel uncomfortable in that sense then? So all, all giants make me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I guess. Well, well I mean, it's, it's less of a monopoly now though than I think it yeah, was. True, absolutely. Because Microsoft Cloud is a thing, Google Cloud is a thing. You know, uh, I think it was fascinating the way that the combination of open source software together with cloud deployment and the fact that you had a few big players that then through their lobbying. Uh, worked out the financial and the legal frameworks with which large companies could then deal with it. And, you know, you've got to you've got to say that uh, Amazon, Google, Microsoft really uh, worked with regulators directly in order to make all of this sort of come through. But but that the the cost to entry now for fintech because of cloud, because of open source software uh, is just, you know, fallen through the roof. You a, a standard fintech wouldn't have been able to afford a an an Oracle license, never mind a a data center. The other thing that comes through um, the story as you just told it is that you named three of the biggest companies out there by any metric who have radically reinvented themselves without our help. And I think one of the very interesting things about the industry we sit in where we pull transformation forward with resistance and pain so the thing we're celebrating came from companies that were already huge and established and had absolutely no compunction about completely redefining mm. their business model, mm. their approach, and radically transforming the industry in the purse. There's a lesson in there, boys mm. and girls. I mean, over this period, have we seen, though, that, I mean, the definition of, like, bank grade has, like, changed? You know, like, that used to be, like, a, a term of endearment that it was, like, a seal of approval. <laughs> it used to be a good thing. Yeah, but now bank grade is, like, not a positive thing. That's sort of seen as, like, a, well, it's... Second best. Yeah, oh, I will do. Yeah, yeah. do for the banks. Because really what we're talking about is the adoption of technologies that have been commoditized in other industries. And really, now it's being used in banking, right? Yeah, because, I, I mean, that's the funny thing. When you, you know, the technologies that I listed have been around for... 10, 15, 20 years now. Uh, so it's not like they're cutting edge. It's just that the the big tech companies of the world had had all of these problems to deal with. Uh, you know, massive scalability. They have to have a system that's up because, you know, c- um, customers, especially on social media or whatever, are super fickle and just leave if the system goes down. So people were just approaching it from a very different perspective. And I think it was a perspective of we can't spend a million dollars on a box with triple power supplies and all of these things. Like We just need to work with what we've got and connect up all of these consumer-grade hard drives or you know thousands of servers. And we know that statistically two of them are going to fail this week, but it's fine because we've architected around that. And I think that changed from the bank grade, let's armor everything and put tons of redundancies in to this expansive cloud-based, horizontally scalable, super resilient system, uh, it, again, is one of those transformative technologies that uh, there's underlying lots of things we do. Hmm. All right. So Jason's is open source and the world. <laughs> like, you know, starting with a big one. All right. Uh, Leader, how about you? What's your favorite fintech partnership? I know um, you're probably almost on the tip of your tongue going to say 11FS Foundry and Apparently DMB. I'm not allowed. <laughs> but so, Apparently I'm not no, allowed. The no. producer told me I am not, not allowed to time. say Foundry and DMB, Foundry and DMB, Foundry and DMB. Move on. Um, so I, I had to pause and think, um, and it wasn't an easy one because I was actually trying to think of a, of a partnership that has come in the past year since we last did our Valentine's Day partnership special. And I must admit that most of the things I could think of were taking us back into a place of innovation theatre collaboration or 
partnering with interesting companies to do things that are on the fringes. Um, and, and the partnerships that are exciting for me are the partnerships that try to reimagine and redefine the business, which is why our relationship with DMB is exciting, which is why some of the partnerships we celebrated last year is exciting. Understandable in light of a whole host of events, sadness of Brexit and saturation and some, some sort of constraints around capital expenditure that we haven't seen any of those radical new partnerships, also because some of the ones that have been ongoing are still waiting to bear fruit. But I must admit that if I look back, the producer said anything to not have me talk about Foundry and DMB. So to yeah, think back. And yet you've mentioned it like 15 times. He said I, I mean, was allowed. Yeah, okay. It's like some edit it, I will know. <laughs> it's like some politician where it's like you ask them a question, they just answer with whatever they like. I'm going to make America like. great again, whether you like it or not. Um, so the one, the one that I remain the most excited about actually takes us a little bit back, and it's Monza with If This Then That. Hmm. And it remains one of the most exciting collaborations for me for three reasons. One, no big bank evolved. It was actually delivering value at the level of creativity and innovation that was needed. I'm hoping it was pretty fast as well. But it created that, um, it took the idea to the next level. He didn't try to take it back into the farm, back into the depths of an organization, but actually tried to push it forward and say, we talk to you about what digital experiences look like. You're in the driving seat now. Mm. I mean, I, I've never seen Simon Vance Kalina more excited than talking about that thing as well. Because, I mean, it was like a, uh, to your point earlier on around engineers wanting to do a thing that really kind of impacts people. I, I know it's it was on his radar for like years and then got the opportunity to really sort of make that happen. Uh, 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 and so the people who don't know what If This Then That is, uh, which is ifttt.com, I think, or something like that, you'd be able to find it. I say that wrong every time, it, so well it done. It was a uh, consumer automation platform. So imagine that you're not an engineer, you don't know anything about coding, but you want to do something with your bank data. And, and it might be that you just need alerting if a certain transaction happens at a certain time. Or actually, you want to keep a, keep a Google sheet of everything that you're spending by category or want to keep a, a funny total of how much you're spending on nights out. So, or um, shoes. Or, or, I don't know, uh, turn on a red light at home when you're, the card that you never use, which is an emergency, is just kept. Now, how would you make that happen? So IFTTT is a, is a platform that lets you say, well, when this happens from this certain data source, then I want this thing to happen with a, with a particular platform. And it can be all, all kinds of things will integrate with this thing. So it was, um, okay, it's a bit niche, but it lets people do uh, experiment and do some really interesting, uh, you know, experiments. I don't think it's that niche because... I mean, you're right, it's niche in terms of the people originating the first ideas, but because everything that was done for one person was then available to everyone else, mm. it breaks down that niche thing and allows the community to actually, from a, from a product perspective, it's brilliant. It's like you, you told me, not, not only you tell me what you want, you do it. Yeah. Well, it's like somebody goes into the whole trouble of making a computer game level, and then they give access to everybody else to just play with it, which right. is great. I mean, I still use it now. I've got a, every time I make any transaction at McDonald's, it puts 50 pounds into my my savings because it's like I want to read like I want to commit to this healthy thing you know like and if I choose not to do it like that 99p cheeseburger ends up costing me 21 pounds uh, and, it, but <laughs> and it, yet it, you still do I it I will still do it sometimes it means if I do it I buy a lot that's the only <laughs> downside but uh, but no I think it's a it's a really interesting partnership and I think 
from what I understand, a lot of things that people have built as a uh, uh, as a thing for them has not only made it to uh, you know shortcuts that have been exposed, but even affected how they what capability they actually develop and build into the platform. So, well, I was just good. looking now at the you know what are the on, on the sites what are the uh, the top recipes, mm-hmm. and actually take the one p savings challenge. You've got twenty thousand people using, so it gradually increases the amount you're saving each day to a pot of your choice. On the first of January, you save one p on the second 2p and it goes up to £3.65 on the last day of the year. Um, so, and what's nice is that because you can't guarantee the the safety because we've not got strong customer authentication all of that kind of payment stuff, then it only does it with data about your transactions or it lets you move move money between pots within Monzo but it doesn't let you send out payments. Mm. So the ability to actually sort of take money and then segregate it out someone has has said great here's a challenge and and we'll see how that's that sort of plays out. Mm. It's interesting. I mean seeing what people use it for and then actually building that into it. I mean, it's it's the uh, ultimate alpha when it comes to kind of actually putting those things out there is uh, let's not create a bunch of functionality and see if people care about it. Let's let people create functionality and then, and then follow build it what back our customers from there. Actually but, but it does lead to some interesting questions about open banking. Um, you know, I was on a panel a couple of weeks ago and you say one of the things that's missing it are these killer use cases that basically we started with a what data do we have, here you go, rather than saying, well, what could we really do with it and what would the APIs needed to be in order to deliver that? Mm. So a good example being proof of, uh, proof of age. So that, you know, to prove that I'm 18 to go and buy alcohol or to order it from online at um, Waitrose, then surely actually my bank being able to say, yes, this is Jason and he's over 18 would be a great API set to have mm. or even an identi- basic identity API. But because it's not designed from those use cases, from people experimenting with the standard and doing it, you end up with account aggregation everywhere. And, and that right. seems to be where we kind of, it's you know, It's also breaking stop. down the barrier of assumption, even inside organizations that should know better about the level of effort building the infrastructure and plumbing for these capabilities would be because you're thinking, oh, if I had to create an identity asset backed by a bank, all of a sudden that becomes a massive vault project with authentication, government capabilities. It's like, actually, no, it's just the supermarket wanting to know if you're over 18. Yeah. It became, it becomes immediately so simple. And and I think it it saves us from ourselves a little bit in terms of articulating something of immense complexity was actually what the user needs is is simple, it's straightforward, and much easier to accomplish than the big program would have been. Nope, super like it. Like that one as an answer. And definitely, like say, Simon getting super excited about it is always a good fun thing to do. All right, uh, so my one was very much about, and like I know I kind of go to this this well a lot, um, but um, uh, it was the actually the change that I think has kind of kicked off all of this stuff, which is the regulatory change. So my my sort of partnership for me was the FCA and everybody. I'm pretty sure that's cheating. Well, I mean, it's a partnership, right? It's just because everybody doesn't know they're in this partnership. It doesn't make it not <laughs> the case. They love you. We need, um, we need to talk about this. Because fundamentally, I think all of the fintechy stuff that happens now uh, really is because of the changes that were actually made from a regulatory perspective. Absolutely. So there would be no Monzo, really. There would be, you know, no uh, Oak North or whatever. Uh, you know, Oak North and the partnership they they did with the FCA was the reason why cloud was fundamentally adopted in the 
first place. It's the reason why any banks are talking about it, because the FCA and Oak North did it together to prove it wasn't something to be scary about. I really should clarify that sentence, but <laughs> they put Oak North in the cloud. Um, so you know, I being, preferred the first version. Yes, I know. That was salacious. Um, <laughs> but so for me, it's really... Uh, showing that this thing is okay, that thinking about financial services in a different way, that fundamentally the competition mandate that they were given was like a real thing and we're going to be issuing new licenses and new opportunities is why fintech really was grown here. But fundamentally, it's why we've seen HKMA and Maz and, you know, now Australia. And, you know, this is why globally fintech has become such a big thing, because at some point, the regulators decided that actually it was a, a thing that they wanted to de-risk the company, with, actually, uh, de-risk the organization. I, I totally agree with that. And I, I would take it a little bit further and say that there was a time, particularly when I was still on the banking side, where I would look at what the regulator is doing and go, you little rascals, I love you. <laughs> and they, they have set the tone in a way that has been, it gave the big organizations time, but the direction of travel and the intentionality was clear from the beginning and it was unwavering. And they did it without a blueprint. And that's the thing I find particularly interesting because if you look at Hong Kong and Singapore, Australia to a lesser extent, they have... They've made a series of interesting choices because the choices they make determine what kind of business models will succeed. And you see that the the flavor you're getting in Singapore and Hong Kong is slightly different to each other and definitely different to London. And it's a very conscious set of choices of what you will encourage and what you will permit. All of those choices have been informed by the very successful path that the FCA has um, has carved for itself. But if you take a step back, they didn't have a blueprint. Mm. And and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when some of those early conversations were had. How committed to the radical transformation of the global economy were they? Or was this a series of, I don't want to say serendipitous because there was definitely design there, but, well, it worked, so let's do the next thing. And now this worked, so let's do the next thing. Yeah, I mean, I think they've been very open to say they've... they've um, uh, not been making it up, but they've been in a situation where they have been uh, doing small things and, you know, in their gains momentum, essentially. But I mean, the first time I think probably me and you, Jason, sort of really came across, uh, I know we were sat in a conference, Anna Wallace was going to be presenting, she turned up like 20 minutes late because she was like super pregnant at the time, um, and with like jeans and sneakers on, and then with no script, just like smashed a presentation, and we were just like, wow, like this is... The world is, has changed. Yeah, the FCA has definitely changed, and I think now this is this is something that's not gone away. You know, if you look at, obviously, uh, Chris Wellard's now stepped up to, to uh, be, uh, I think, temporarily in charge of the FCA, given the title, how it's set up. Um, but I think the successes that innovate and everything that has been set up has really set up the UK as the the hub from a fintech perspective, and that's rippled out everywhere. So, you know, lots of good things there in terms of partnerships and giving people permission. Um, but that one would definitely be my one. I think that the FCA and the PRA uh, started this because of the 
poor performance of the the UK market. You know, ultimately, what are the uh, in regulation? It was always interesting to think what are the smallest interventions you can make in the market that will actually make it more healthy. And when you've got you know the five big players with what eighty five percent of the market, no one moving over periods of decades. That's not a, it's not a performing market. Mm. People aren't innovating. They're not improving. There's no drive to do that. So the fact that they could bring in current account switching service, the fact that they could uh, you know give new banking licenses out, that they can start to reduce the cost of launching these new things by allowing things like cloud, suddenly created a, a more competitive landscape, which then led to a new players. But what I think is interesting is that the arguably the big change or the, the bigger change that are coming along uh, are the um, uh, are what's to come. I think they've got bigger um not issues, but bigger challenges in the next few years. I think there's two. Like one is this move into open banking, where suddenly we've got this whole layer of intermediaries uh, who can then act on behalf of the customer, and that that changes financial services regulation pretty significantly. And then the second is this idea that no longer are you regulating against mis-selling PPI, but suddenly it's all about this new services layer and are you doing the right thing for the customer in the right situation? Mm. And I think that move from regulating the sale and distribution of financial products, commodity financial products, to regulating the delivery and management and security and operational resilience of digital services. I would take it even further and say it goes from regulating whether you did the thing against a checklist to whether you did the best thing possible now that we know what we know. Mm. But but that but the best thing possible also changes from That's a, right. and so it's almost like, you know, we talk when we go and talk to banks about great, you've been a banker and you've been pulling the levers around interest rates, net interest margin for last years, and now we're in the services world and here's jobs to be done. And this is it's like, whoa, hold on. And great, you're a regulator and you've been checking whether people have had their training. And uh, David's done his CBT this week, so that's good. I did. And you know, have you been trying to sell anything or what are your incentives like? Great. Oh, by the way, that's gone and we're we've been replaced by a system that's now moving money dynamically uh, between savings pots in order to make sure that you're, you know, you don't go uh, overdrawn on your mortgage. It's like, uh, right. And what's our framework for for managing against that? Where's my risk log? So I, I think that that the journey of what does data privacy and ecosystems and operational resilience and cybersecurity when you've got state-level actors hacking. So the, the job of a, of a 21st century regulator, um, you suddenly have to start looking at what does the, this future look like and what place do, how do we ha- protect customers while at the same time allowing innovation to continue? 100%. But what we're seeing is that the regulator is either showing themselves or hiring in a way that allows them to learn as fast as they need to and definitely faster than the industry they're regulating. Mm. But it is a very unique position we're in in the UK to be able to point to the regulator and say to banks, well, the FCA did it. Mm. They they close the knowledge gap, they close the appreciation gap because everything you're describing, Jason, is exactly the world they need to understand and create a roadmap for regulatory oversight and intervention that allows protection of the customer and gives the incumbents time to do the needful, so to speak. But, but isn't, it, isn't it interesting, though, that I think the dynamic of the, the relationship has shifted, though, because I don't think it's just 
poacher gamekeeper in the way in which it was. It was like, all right, you know, tell us what the rules are and we'll figure out how to bend them. You know, like it's not it's not quite like that. I genuinely feel what like if you, you accept. Yeah, if you look at a lot of the the players that have kind of come into the market now, I sort of trust their intentions. And I appreciate mm. intentions and culture and like purpose of an organization is down to sets of individuals and those things can change very quickly if people change. Um, but I think the way in which they've been open to your point leader to go we don't know all the answers to this stuff, but we're going to work with you to try and figure it out. Things like the sandbox has been, uh, you know, really the reaction to that is we don't always know the answer, but we will work with you as an industry to try and figure those things out. Yes, but on the other hand, I'd say like a lot of our uh, big banks, uh, the big banks that we work with, the regulator has a schizophrenic <laughs> makeup. Yeah. So I think that there are people who are very much are supporting this and driving it along, but they're also very much the old school, you know, traditional policeman regulator. Yeah. And I'm glad that a lot of them are there, yeah. you know, because when you're looking at that capital liquidity and, you know, PPI and everything else, then you often need someone to go in and say, you know, to, to keep the line. Mm. Um, but it, but like the banks where we work with where, you know, they're looking at these lean product engines, intelligence services and, you know, ecosystems and app stores. At the same time, there are people selling mortgages and credit cards and everything else in order to kind of keep the ship going. So it does lead to this interesting question as to is it does the the culture and the purpose and the internal structure of regulator, you know, of the regulator, uh, is that a singular thing? Or actually, you know, do you need people who are continuing to police those financial products while at the same time starting to look ahead and and having at least a few people, of, yeah. of which mentioned a few, starting to look and and oversee and protect consumers in these new ways? Yeah, I mean, you know, regulation of algorithms, what is regulation in a real-time environment? I mean, they've got some more work to do for sure. But um, but I think we've done a lot to get us to here. But I appreciate they have a hell of a lot of stuff to still keep doing. So don't – I mean, all of three of them that we've picked out, Monzo, please don't stop going, doing good work. You know, the definitely, FCA. Definitely don't stop Don't stop doing good work. Doing good work. <laughs> and open source community, please don't give up on it. It's like <laughs> it's a real thing. So, um, But they're definitely, I think, for, for us, the you know, the three that probably stands out. So now that we've covered our favorite partnerships, we're actually going to, for the first time ever, allow some listeners and friends of the show to call in and tell us what their favorite partnerships are live. So caller number one. Wow, this <laughs> this sounds this sounds suddenly very sort of late radio show, but who's our caller number one? Hi, it's Caroline from Fluidly. Hey Caroline, how are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, really good. Wow. I mean, you're usually in here around the table with us, but uh, long but, time listener, first time caller. It does. It does sound. It's very I, late, I late feel love. Like going I am. On. Jason is having a really nice time today. <laughs> yes. I hope you're having as much fun as we are, Caroline. But um, it doesn't sound like it. But I, I wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, what it would be good to do is, I mean, tell us about what your favourite partnership is. What's the partnership that has really stood out for you in the uh, the fin? tech banking scene? Well, one of my favorites lately has to be um, the love-in between Barclays and Flux. Um, so obviously Flux is the um, brilliant startup that does receipts management and kind of receipts in an app for banks um, and kind of e-receipts more generally. And I think Barclays is in a partnership with them 
um, which of course they've taken a kind of strategic interest as well. So the partnership's never quite a, you know, just never a pure play partnership, but it's always some complication. But um, it just sounds like a really lovely um, way to add new technology to Barclays and for Flux to grow, clearly get a lot of distribution and strategic investment. So I just thought it was a sound like a match made in heaven, really. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, Flux sort of started with a few partnerships with sort of Monzo and Starling and various different players. But, you know, if you're going for big distribution, then Barclays is a lot a lot bigger with a lot more consumers, right? What, what do you think of, uh, of Flux, Jason? Well, weren't they the um, three, like, really early Revolut uh, mm. employees that left and said, we're going to revolutionize receipts that I was always a bit suspicious of? Couldn't really see the... the um, like what the consumer benefit uh, like really was okay. on, on that suspicious like that not like was suspicious like <laughs> Ver, like Veronique Barbosa is like a lovely lady like I don't want you casting aspersions on the... no no ju- but just you know that that kind of product side of are we really annoyed by paper receipts mm. but actually yes. the data <laughs> you know the data side of things and then what we can do because we have more data is super interesting but it's it's been such a difficult problem it's been amazing to see them uh, sort of take the large chains of restaurants to you know to start off with and all kinds of other people because quite often the those big supermarket chains and big restaurant chains don't want to share the mm. the item level data so it was always one of those things where do customers care enough do big chains really want to give that data will it be integrated it was a super tough problem and it's been actually quite amazing or inspiring to see them take something which i was like is this really going to work to 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 actually to this level mm. it, it it's absolutely true and when i saw the partnership announced um i was very happy for flux but it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which Caroline, you weren't here for. So I, I was saying that there's a lot of activity still, but it seems like the truly transformative isn't quite coming. So is this a really big deal for Flux? Yes. Is this good for Barclays? Yes. Is it going to change Barclays? No. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting because, like you say, the the partnerships that Flux on the back office here have to put in place with the merchants is like a really big deal. And for Barclays to put in place those types of things would be probably very, very different, you know, just procurement really would Mm. be very, very difficult. So, you know, to have a a kind of a smaller organization being able to run around and put those big level uh, partnerships in place to allow basket level information for Barclays would be a, a huge win, if nothing else. So yeah, really, really good one, Caroline. Thank you very much for calling in. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Stake, the digital brokering app bringing you the unrivaled access to the U.S. market. Invest in over 3,500 U.S. stocks and ETFs, including game-changing companies like Google, Amazon, and Tesla. Go get some of those Tesla stocks, just saying. Uh, no, this is not financial advice. Okay, it's just not financial advice. Saying yeah. I keep getting that wrong. You, you have to say that fast with this. I know, I'm sorry. All right, trading is instant, direct, and commission-free. And with a fully digitized sign-up, you'll be in the market in minutes. So visit hellostake.com or search Stake Trade to seize the U.S. market's $31 trillion worth of opportunity today. Okay, and let's go to caller number two. Hello, caller number two. Oh, hello. Is this uh, for Nick Siders? <laughs> is. is this the complaint that we're about to get, is it? Uh, who have we got on caller number two? Hey, David. It's uh, Ali here from uh, Fintech Finance. Hey, Ali. How's it going? Yeah, no, very good at the moment. Very good. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you very much. I will expect my card in the post, my friend. And chocolates. Mm, indeed. That sounds a bit weird. And chocolates. <laughs> I'm a tough date. What can I say? Okay, what, uh, what was your favourite partnership, Ali? 
you know, I was I'm slightly gutted because I was really hoping to be able to say it was Amex and Curve, but they didn't they didn't get back together. They've been uh, Ross and Rachel it. Tough relationship. Uh, tough tough relationship. <laughs> we hope it will pan out did eventually. You, did you just verb Ross and Racheling it? <laughs> I love you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've 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 got to go for uh, it's, it's an oldie, but it's uh, it's, it's established as a classic. I think um, TFL in London hmm? uh, and uh, NFC. It's, nice. It's, it's it's pushed everything along. It's the reason why you know there's so much uh, NFC in, uh, in in London. Yeah, I mean, I completely, completely agree with this one. It, it, we would not really have got anywhere near the adoption numbers for for contactless without the good old Oyster card, would we? Absolutely, I think there's there's been a few copy and paste. Uh, like I know South Africa's they've pretty much done the same thing in uh, in Cape Town, mm. um, and hopefully see a lot of uh, contactless happening uh, happening out there in other places in the world as well. Yeah, I mean we've just seen the adoption over in New York, which is good. And like you say, the Gow train down in South Africa did an amazing job. I think they implemented that one as part of when the World Cup was in South Africa, if I remember rightly. And obviously over in Hong Kong, you've got uh, Oyster that was there, Octopus, Octopus. So, uh, yeah, it's just an uh, amazing thing. And it does seem to be the way, doesn't it? You know, closed loop payment systems where you can really control all of the elements within the the, the, the payment space there seem to be able to provide a, a better uh, a better service that then starts to spill out into all of the other places. It's, it's amazing because when I was ambushed walking down the, the hallway by our producer saying, what's your favorite partnership we needed for the show? I stumbled a little bit. And, and as we're going through some of these partnerships, you're like, ah, oh, I wish I'd thought of that. And and this one in particular, it has been so transformative to our lives that we have now forgotten it was ever not there. Mm. Do you remember when you had to have a ticket? When you had to have an Oyster card? Mm. And it's it's such an interesting one because we do seek for those pieces of, of change, however complex or not, that genuinely transform the consumer's life. And this is definitely one of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's micro moments, isn't it? I think I think it has taken something away from us as British people, though, where we used to... You miss the paper tickets? I just used to enjoy a good tut while people uh, sort of fumbled around with a bit of paper. I saw someone trying to touch their paper to the to the reader, and I was like, I don't know whether I want to hug you or shake you. <laughs> I don't know if you're like a true digital native or my grandmother. I can't see from this distance. Were, were they clutching their A to Z and talking about the arches? <laughs> just, just want to know. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, but have you tried the new Express Mode with Apple Pay? Uh, which, which is basically the, the new sort of transit mode if you've got an iPhone or an Apple Watch. Super fast. Is it? You know, before you would have to pull out your phone, double tap on the side, it would come up, you do your face recognition, meanwhile, David's behind you, turning, <laughs> you know. Now, you, you pull out your phone, it's off. You put your phone on the reader, and basically you're through. It's, it's that fast. Does it really, I mean, have you tried this? Andy? I have. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Samsung man, so... Um, oh, I'm, 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 Get this man off the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I haven't tried I wonder that why yet. the sound quality wasn't so good, Alex. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Do you know what? Can, I, I, can we have drum roll when we actually get this one ready? <laughs> I haven't tried the transit mode yet. Just because, I mean, with new payment mechanisms, I think comes a little bit of fear. What, you're like a late adopter? You're about to tell me. To say, <laughs> I haven't tried it because I walked. <laughs> no, well, that's true too. But it, but there's a little bit of fear with any like new payments things because because of the tutting. You know, like it's like um, if you've got an Amex card that gets declined because they just don't accept Amex, you're a little bit more nervous. I mean, 
Sorry, no, that wasn't like, that I wasn't want another. My miles. Yeah, that wasn't another curve thing, Ali. Don't worry, though. It wasn't. You know, I, was, I I used to live in a country where card connectivity was a thing that needed work, and people tend we did we did an extensive piece of research, and people tended to default to cash because it was faster. And they didn't want the tutting. So the tutting is a universal thing. The speed of your payment processing, not so much. I mean, the Brits have exported many things. Tutting is one of them as well. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ali. Thank you, caller number two. Cool. Okay, and now moving on to caller number three. Hello, caller number three. Who do we have? Hey, it's Dave Cunningham here. Hey, Dave, how are you doing? Awesome. I, I, I felt very Scylla Black then. I was like, contestant number three. <laughs> this is kind of bizarre. So I'm not going to put you under that pressure. Don't worry. This oh, no, he will. He will. will it? Oh, well, don't give away. But uh, all right, Dave, um, talking about favorite partnerships, um, who's been your favorite partnership in this space? Mine is Apple and Goldman Sachs. And uh, yeah, I think I think it's great. So for, for those of us of a certain vintage, uh, we grew up with friends. And uh, I was trying to think of the analogy of, of to who this might be. And Monica from Friends, I think, is Apple because Monica seeks perfection out and will only do things in this perfect way. And she kind of needed this reliable character in the background, uh, like Chandler Bing, who isn't as Did handsome. You just called Goldman Sachs Chandler Bing. I will love you forever. <laughs> <laughs> Has to be later. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's the way it is because. Everybody in, in Apple, okay, they want to live in this beautiful wall garden. Everything has to be perfect in that. And if you're going to go into fintech and really do it extremely well, Goldman are just the most dynamic now with Marcus and everything. They're just awesome at what they do. And this is only the start, in my opinion, of a beautiful relationship. Mm. Well, I do hear that, uh, I mean, Goldman Sachs have been working on their, their weenus indicator, haven't they, for, for some time now, which is a, another friend's I, I'm, I'm stumped into silence by this, like, <laughs> uh, Monica and, and Chandler Bing business. I mean, all right, all friends quotes aside, like, this is a biggie. Right? Do you want to translate this for millennials, just so they know what you're talking <laughs> you about? Know, there, was, there, was, there was actually a study. It's a classic. Genuinely, it's a classic. Genuinely, there was a study that came out that said that millennials actually so from the age of five to 19 favorite program is friends also jason something even sadder david is technically a millennial yeah take no. that you two anyway so back back to the back to the point on this though i mean there, this this is sort of a seismic shift in the the industry right you know we've everybody's been scared of the big bad wolf coming in being those big tech players and finally what's happened is in almost a uh, a vampire-esque sense somebody it's has had dramatic. to invite them in to the house before they were really impactful what, what do you think this is the second time this week i'm gonna wax lyrical about goldman sachs on the podcast like this is not me but but i will repeat myself because i like to be consistent it's exciting because it it does that Goldman thing of not cannibalizing their own business model, going into new areas. And you're right; it's it's fresh for them. It's only upside. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it does it does feel that way, doesn't it? It feels like there's, I mean, it feels like there's opportunity on both sides. But Dave, what do you think? Are we uh, are we sort of butchering your uh, your idea here, or is it does it align? I think Spot on, and I was listening to Leda talk about Goldman uh, in the in the last episode, and their 993 billion or so of assets. They're they're absolutely incredible, and and this is this is only a tiny fraction of what they're going to do. So, 
where, where I thought it was the best is because with Apple and their beautiful wall garden, you have access to an ass affluent uh, demographic as well as, you know, a, a bunch of others and those who will be getting into that high net worth individual and ultra high net worth individual kind of demographic. You're giving them something that gives them value and utility straight away with this card and gives gives cash back, but it's still a really great experience with the phone and where where the phone doesn't work by having the card. But to me, this is only because I'm I'm just obsessed with how we can balance privacy with utility and 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 looking at our data. So can go can Goldman now step in and offer banking to the point that has been made across fintech insiders episode one to three nine nine and I'm sure continuing into four hundred. Can it deliver value at the point of need and where finance is needed? And if it lives in that ecosystem for for Apple and it needs some needs lending, it needs anything else. Goldman can potentially step in and add that value just where it's needed. Yeah, I think the the thing I I really uh, enjoy about this one is it's uh, as I think we talked about uh, what feels like about five seconds ago, leader. But it's like Goldman Sachs is happy to just trundle in with a gigantic balance sheet and spoil everybody else's business model. Uh, I'm a bloody While big fan not of touching that. their own. You have to admire that. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a beautiful game if they can kind of pull it it's off like and disintermediation. I'll show you how it's done. Exactly. It's done to you, exactly. not to me. Yeah, and with that balance sheet, they can they can have a pretty pretty amazing impact. But you know, this is I mean, it is the archetypal um, sort of innovators' dilemma plan C. This is really giving up your distribution to somebody who's way better at it than you, while you retain all of the the product capability. But what do you think, Jay? Yeah, I think Dave they put it very very well. Um, you know, when you look at those big tech players, in the end, Goldman's always been a, a tech player. Investment banking is, you know, the high-frequency trading stuff and the quant and the, you know, the approach to to that style of business for a retail player gets super interesting, especially if you don't have a retail presence and you can disintermediate a whole industry and go direct to consumer, then where does that lead you? You know, what does this this end up being if if Goldman starts really getting its getting to grips with it? Yeah, super interesting. I mean, I don't think it will be the last partnership that Goldman Sachs do, definitely, Absolutely given not. how they're setting up. But really, really good choice, Dave. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything I've learned from uh, from Fintech Insiders, all these episodes. Oh, so I really shucks. appreciate you all. If nothing less, it's don't drink and do podcasting. But uh, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for joining us anyway, Dave. <laughs> Cheers. Okay, and that wraps up today's show, and that wraps up episode 400 of Fintech Insider. Special thank you for joining me, guys. Where can people find out more about you, Mr. Jason Bates? Um, you can hear my rantings at Jason Bates on Twitter. And where can people find out more about you, Lida? Our Twitter or LinkedIn. As for me, you can find me over on LinkedIn. You just search my name, B-R-E-A-R. Do you know what? I, I spend my entire life just spelling my surname. Going, not bear, not yeah, bear. Have uh, so you thought about changing it to make it easier to spell? I don't know. I've invested, I've invested a lot of Google sort of uh, David Bates. search equity at this time. So. He'll adopt you. We could do it. All right. 
Thank you so much for everybody who called in and thank you listeners for listening. The show would not be what it is today without you guys, which is either a diss or praise. <laughs> Take it how you will. You can find us on social media over at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Periscope, YouTube. I mean, just everywhere at this point. Search for 11FS. As usual, don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. If you really do love us, please leave us a review. Thank you for everybody who called in. That's all that we have for this week. Here's to the next 400.